striving to live like Jesus. And that says a lot about who we are as a church. And what we want is for this to be a church, regardless of your background, regardless of maybe what kind of spiritual uh, upbringing you had, if you had a spiritual upbringing, that this is a place where you feel welcome, regardless of your ethnicity, that this is a place where you feel welcome, regardless of your economic status, that this is a place where you feel welcome. We believe that's the heart of God, that we actually be a mosaic and that we strive to live like Jesus. And you know what Jesus said? He said, I came to make God known. And that's our mission too, like as a church and as a people, when we worship like this, when we teach from the scriptures, it's to make God known because when we know God in our lives, it changes everything about us. So it's a complicated question in some ways, but it's a pretty simple question as well. We really are a mosaic striving to live like Jesus. If you're new at Grace, um, I would love to know that you're here. We would love to know that you're here. So there's a connection card in your bulletin. We'd love for you to fill that out, drop it off at the Welcome Center information counter and just say, hey, I was here. Um, we'd love to know. That's also a great way for you to ask us questions. So if you hear something today that, that causes you to want to ask questions, there's pretty good odds you might. Uh, based on where we're going today in the scriptures. Uh, that's a great way to communicate with us. Uh, you can always email us with the connection card, and we'll make a commitment to get back to you within the week as well. In your bulletin is this envelope. It's got a little palm tree on it. It says, Grace Family Christmas Tree. And for those of you who've been around here a long time, what we've done in the past is we've had a Christmas tree out in the lobby with these envelopes on it. We've asked people to grab the envelopes and put some donation in there, and we use that money to offset uh, the needs of the congregation during the holiday season. People come to us and have trouble uh, because of Christmas making ends meet, and it's just a way for us to have a benevolent fund that can help people uh, as they navigate through the holiday season. But what we realize is we're asking people to give in a very season where they're also stressed a little bit. So we decided to try something different and do Christmas in July. And some of you are thinking, but it's not July. I know we ran out of days and it's August. So don't email me that July is over with. I know July is over with, but Grab an envelope if you can, make a donation, 100% of the proceeds from that go into the benevolent fund for people in need during the holiday season. So it's a simple way for you to give uh, to others and follow the teachings of Jesus. Uh, also today, when you go out the, and you go out these doors and up the steps, right on the right, you'll see uh, a, a little store, if you will, set up. It's a, of Indian art stuff that, that we used when we did that bazaar for Roger and Hiroko, who have the home for teenage and, and underage girls who were pulled out of trafficking in India. Um, this is the leftover stuff from the bazaar. We want to sell it because we want all that money to go to them. So stop there. You can buy a necklace. You can, there's some really cool cards. I actually met with somebody yesterday who pulled out a card that somebody sent to them, which was one of the cards that Hiroko designed, and she just said this card meant so much to me. So really cool stuff there. Stop and uh, uh, buy something and help us to support Courage Homes, which is a great cause and part of... Uh, Impact. At this point, I'd love for you to stand up and welcome somebody you don't know to Grace. Every life we have some trouble. When you worry, you make it double. Don't worry. Be happy. Don't worry. Be happy now. Don't worry. Be happy. Sticks and stones break your bones. I know what you're feeling. Words like. 
<laughs> so uh, if you didn't figure it out, what we just showed up there is a program that we have uh, just finished called True Princess. And um, here's the fascinating thing. I knew it was happening, uh, but I had the chance to deliver cupcakes for the, the final day because those of you who don't know, my wife, my wife, my daughter makes cupcakes. She made a bunch of cupcakes, walked in, and I began to, to listen to the girls talk about uh, their experience. And it just, it was amazing to me. Uh, and it really uh, is something that I wanted you to hear about in the same way that I got to. So um, I thought maybe we would just start with Carrie telling us uh, who these young ladies are uh, that are with us. And then we're just going to hear a little bit of their experiences they went through True Princess. Okay. Um, this is Jada Hickson, and she's going to be in sixth grade in the fall. And then we have Mackenzie Driscoll, and she's going to be in seventh grade. And Sophia Smith is also going to be in seventh grade. Let's welcome them to Grace. Um, Jada, I think what I would love for you to do is maybe just tell us a little bit about what was True Princess. Like, what was the program? Um, True Princess was teaching girls that you don't have to be a princess on the outside wearing all the puffy gowns and the big crowns, but you can be a princess on the inside by representing our Heavenly Father and showing everyone in Him that you love Him and making sure that he knows that it's true. That's why it was called True Princess. Awesome. And Kenzie, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you actually did? Like, what was it that the, the program was all about? Okay, so uh, we met every Tuesday from 7 to 9 downstairs in the storm room. And we would start off with a craft that had something to represent something in the Bible that happened. And then we would split into smaller groups, um, sixth graders and seventh graders. And the seventh graders would go to manners class. And what would happen in manners class was you would learn how to properly set a table, order a pizza. Wait, you got to catch that. Did you hear what she said? Order a pizza, because that's a life skill we all need to have. <laughs> If you're going to go to college especially, you better know how to order a pizza. Um, introduce family or family to friends. And I think the most important thing that we learned in manners class was to dress modestly, not only in church but outside of church because it represents you. Anything else? <laughs> um, and then lastly, we'd split into even smaller groups and we would talk about the Bible and what really happened and about his story. That's awesome. Sophia, it's great. Uh, Sophia, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you liked about it, what you learned, a little bit about your own experience. My favorite thing that we got that um, I did in True Princess was manners classes because it's skills that I will take everywhere I go. And um, we've learned that um, we, well, we learned that we are princesses of God, and so we are daughters of God, and it brought us closer, and I think that impacted our lives. That's awesome. And Carrie, why don't you tell us a little bit about like how the whole thing was designed, maybe some of the actual activities you did? Okay, so one of the activities that we did was um, we took mirrors. We all look at ourselves in the mirror every day. And the first thing we did was with a dry erase marker, we wrote all the things that when we look in the mirror, we see about ourselves. So, and it's things that the world tells us and things that are negative. So, I'm stupid, I'm ugly, I'm not popular enough, I don't have the right clothes, all those things. And then we went into the scriptures and we, we read about how God loves us and he created us unique and perfect in his eyes and all of the things that he does for us and how he looks at us. And we erased all the negative words and wrote um, the truths that we learned about how we're forgiven, that we're special, that we're daughters of a king. And they took the mirrors home so that they can look at them and be reminded of who they are. That's cool. And Sophia, do you want to share about um, the crowns? Yeah. When we got to True Princess, we did this crown thing and we had these crowns and we wrote out all of our idols and idols can be good things or bad things and they separate us from God and after on the last day we sat 
we laid the crowns at the foot of the cross and we traded them in for tiaras to remember that we are princesses of God and we have to honor him first. That's awesome. That's all right. Mackenzie, why don't you tell us a little bit about the foot, the foot thing, the foot thing. Okay, so one of the activities that we did in True Princess Camp, we got partners and we physically painted paint on their feet and helped them walk over to this sheet of paper and they walked on it and then we helped them walk back and we washed their feet off, kind of like Jesus did to the, the, to the disciples in the Bible. And how does it make you feel to wash somebody's feet? It makes me feel proud and honored to be able to help someone else wash their feet and know that they want me to. Isn't that cool? That's really awesome. So another big piece of the program that I just love is that there were, it was, it was done with 6th and 7th grade girls, but they brought in uh, other girls to be their mentors. So I thought it'd be great if we just took a minute to recognize who the mentors were within the group. So why don't you each just tell us who your mentors were and maybe just how old, like what, what, what age span they're in. We don't want to give away any secrets about people's age here. <laughs> My mentors were Nicole and Maddie. Nicole is college and Maddie is high school aged. That's great. My mentors were Carrie and Aaron Lubianski. Um, I enjoyed having them as my mentors because there was a wide range of age because I got taught from a high schooler and um, an older woman. An older woman. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And who were your mentors? My mentors were Lakeisha and Elzia, and I really liked them because Miss um, Elzia was a little older than Miss Lakeisha, so she had more stories about where she went and how she taught about God, and Miss Lakeisha also told us about how she taught her children and how she been places and told people about God that don't really know. and. Um, I, Miss Elzia taught us about how she went to different countries and she served and told others about God to who barely know of who he is. That's really awesome. <clears throat> so we're in this series called Game Changers and the idea is that God wants us to have an impact outside of, of our own little circle and one of the things that when we first met and talked uh, Friday and then and then this morning again, um, that I love, Jada, do, do you think that this is going to make a difference outside of, of church? And if so, how do you think it would make a difference? Like, what difference does it make that you guys went through the True Princess program? Well, we are representing God in church because we are here. Like, every, there's a lot of people here. And so you have to represent him outside because there's people outside of church who really don't know who he is like they know his name and they know that people think that he's real but they really don't know the strong meaning of what he's trying to teach us so we have to tell people that god's real he loves us we're his daughters and his sons he sacrificed himself for us when he could have just destroyed everything and tell God that he, that he loves you and you should know that. And he loves you no matter what mistakes you make. Amen. Isn't that awesome? So I would like to pray for them. I'd like you to join me as we pray for them. Lord, thank you so much for this program that you have uh, uh, given the ladies here at Grace to, to do from Carrie to Dawn and the other women that stepped in just to help pull this off. Thank you for the mentors that played a part. Thank you for the young girls, uh, not just these three, but all of the girls that participated in the True Princess program. I pray that the truths of what they learned would carry them throughout their entire lives uh, as they go into junior high and they go into high school and then into college and marriage and, and all of the different seasons of life that you will bring their way, uh, whatever they are, Lord, that they would remember that they are daughters of the Most High God, that they, they really are princesses. It's not just a program, it's truth. And that truth is powerful beyond words. So Lord, we just pray a blessing over them. Help them to be the ladies that you've called them to be. Uh, and just bless them. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's thank them one more time for being up here. Thank you, ladies. Thank you. So grab your Bibles, open up to uh, First Peter. 
1 Peter chapter 3, we're going to read verses 1 through 7. 1 Peter 1 through 7. Uh, hopefully by now you know where 1 Peter is. Hopefully you've been following along for the last few weeks. We're walking through all of 1 Peter. Um, I hope that you're reading it at home. I hope that you're reading it here. Um, so 1 Peter chapter 3, we're going to read verses 1 through 7. Peter writes, wives, in the same way, be submissive to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behaviors of their wives, when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair, wearing of gold jewelry, or fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of an inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her master. You are daughters if you do what is right, and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as a weaker partner and as heirs with you in the gracious gift of life, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. So keep your Bibles open to First Peter. We're obviously going to go back and we're going to unpack all this. But, but So I came back from vacation. If those of you who don't know, I've been gone for two weeks. I missed you. Um, and I get back on, on Monday morning and I walk in. And my rhythm of the week usually is I try to uh, at least hold most of Monday as sacred as a time for me just to sit with whatever I'm going to be teaching that weekend as a way of kind of getting into the passage. So I walked in Monday morning, and I knew this was coming, but I might have been in denial. I'm not sure. I'm sorry, this piece of paper is going to drive me nuts. I'll just keep staring at it. That's my ADD in action. So look, a bird, right? So anyway, I walk in on Monday morning, and I sit down, and I read this passage, and I literally think to myself, I quit. <laughs> Welcome back. This is great. This, this passage um, ought to come with like a fuse sticking out of it because it is loaded and it creates so much angst in it. So the truth of the matter is just reading the passage, some of you are already offended. Honestly, I'm, I'm just being real. Some of you read this and it already puts you on edge. It already makes you think, look, I don't like what Peter is writing. I don't like the words that Peter uses. I don't like the language that comes with this passage of scripture. But the truth of the matter is if we're going to teach through a book of the Bible, then we're going to teach through a book of the Bible, and so this is what is next as we move through 1 Peter. And what I want to do before we dive into dissecting this particular passage, is I want to give you the small print. I want to give you the asterisks at the end. This is, this is all that fine print that you got to read through, but I'm going to do it on the front end because I think it will help if we have this, this kind of done first. And the first thing I want you to know is that, that throughout the centuries, and even in today's culture, this passage is often used by men as a passage to oppress or lord over women. It's a passage that's been used in a way to really abuse women. And so when women hear it, they naturally are going to bristle and become uncomfortable because they know that part of history. But the fact of the matter is, the only way that that could happen is if the person didn't know the whole context of Scripture, if they didn't know all of the teachings of Jesus. Because you see, when Jesus was with his disciples, his actually the apostles, the, the few that he chose that were going to build his church. He was sitting with them right before his death and he was talking to them and he said the, the rulers and the kings, those who are in authority, those who have position, those who have power, use their position to lord over you. Now remember, he's talking to Peter, the great apostle Peter, who's going to be an integral part of, of, of building the church. These are people who really do have great authority and great power in the kingdom of, of building the church. So, so they have position, they have power. And he said, these other people, they use that as a way of lording over. But then in Matthew 20, he says to his apostles, he says, but not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. So just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life for a ransom for many, 
So if the passage is used to oppress someone, to lord over someone, then they've missed the very heart of what it means to be a Jesus follower anyway. The other thing I want you to know, fine print, is that this is not a passage about church leadership. It's not a passage that we can use to inform us to as whether or not women should be ordained as elders or ordained as pastors. There is a debate that could be had about all that. There are scriptures that we could use to address all that. But that is not what this passage is about. This is a passage about marriage. This is very clearly a passage written to the context of marriage. So there's a high percentage of people in here who are not married. Does that mean that you should check out for the rest of the service? I hope not. There's something in here for you. If you are a person who knows somebody that's married, then there's going to be something for you in here. If you are a person who desires to be married at some point, then there's something for you in this. If you are a person that's in relationship with other people, then there will be something today for you. So don't check out. But the fact of the matter is, this is a passage about marriage. The other thing I want you to know is what Peter was writing is incredibly counterculture in its day. So it's still counterculture. We still read it and we sort of bristle. But in the day that Peter wrote this, it was actually incredibly liberating for women. Some of you would read it and think, how could these words, how could these, these sentences in any way be liberating to women? And I hope if I do my job well that we'll unpack that in just a few minutes. But if we bristle at the words that we read, if we think to ourselves, this is so not right, and we realize that it's countercultural, the thing that I would like to challenge you to is the fact that we need some counterculture. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to look at the, the health of marriage in the United States and realize it's pretty screwed up. We don't have to look into the United States. We can actually look at the health of the marriage within the context of this church and, and realize we need something better. We need something different. We need to come at marriage in a different sort of way than what the culture tells us to come at it if we are going to have great marriages. And so we need counterculture. It's radical, but maybe we need a little bit of radical. And then the last thing I'd say is the fine print before we get into this is that this is the value of teaching through a book of the Bible. It forces us to do the hard work. I would never have chosen to teach this passage the week I got back from vacation. I just wouldn't have picked it. It's a hard passage to preach. But when we decide that we're going to teach through a book of the Bible, it forces us to be disciplined enough to stop and look at the passages that we don't necessarily like what the writer is saying or we maybe not even understand what the writer is saying. So the application for you is when you study the Word of God, don't jump over stuff. Don't say, well, I don't like that. I'm not going to apply it. It doesn't matter if you like it. God may have something. And for me this week, God has had a great deal to say to me personally. As I've studied and tried to figure out how I would teach this passage, God has something to say as a church to us through this passage that we need to hear as men and women in our own context. And if we were just teaching randomly about what we wanted to, chances are we never would have landed on this particular passage. So that's the value of teaching verse by verse. Now that I've given you all the fine print, all of the, uh, the asterisks, let's break down First Peter. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for First Peter. Thank you for this amazing letter. Thank you for the richness that is uh, 1 Peter and how much that we have to take from it. I pray, Lord, uh, as always, that we would have hearts to hear what you want us to hear, that we would be disciplined enough to apply the word of God into our own lives. Lord, as always, we pray that we would walk out of this place different than we came. We would never be willing to just play church. But we pray that this would not be an exercise of knowledge because knowledge puffs up but that it would be an experience with the living God that would cause us to love others better. In Jesus' name, amen. So to, in order to understand the passage, so, so keep your Bibles open to 1 Peter. In order to understand this passage, we have to remember the context of 1 Peter. And I hope by now you're beginning to know the context of the book. In the same way I hope you know the context of Philippians because we taught through that. Is that, that when you go to a particular book of the Bible, if we're doing our, our good work with you in teaching, then you're going to know the themes and the, and the overriding principles of, the, of that particular book. But 1 Peter, we know, is written to a bunch of people who are displaced, oppressed, um, people. Some of them are actually slaves. Some of them are actually exiles. They'd been taken from their land and placed in that area. And, and Peter is writing to those people who are oppressed and he's saying to them, I know you are oppressed. I know that you are, are being held down, but I am calling you to be a game changer anyway. 
The whole theme of 1 Peter is to be a person who has a positive impact on their environment regardless of how the environment is treating them. And the truth of the matter is this really isn't a new thing. The very heart of it is that if you are a chosen person, if God would call you the chosen person, and if you've made a decision to follow Christ, then you now are the chosen people. What are you chosen for? You're chosen to represent God. You're chosen to make God known. You're chosen to live your life in such a way that people see your good deeds and, and, and honor your Father in heaven. Part of our lives are to, are to make God known. That's what it means to be chosen people. And so it's always been that way. So let me take you back a few centuries before this letter was written. There's the people and the people of Israel and they had traveled through the desert and they'd taken possession of the promised land and they'd begun to live and they began to grow and they began to establish armies and they began to take lands. But, but the one thing as we read through the Kings and the Chronicles over and over, it, it says, but they didn't do what's right in the eyes of the Lord. They didn't live in a way that honored God. The truth of the matter is they never learned to trust God. They didn't trust God in the desert. And when they got to the promised land, as a people, they never learned to trust God. And so God wanted to get their attention. So he would bring about different problems as a way of, of punishing, if you will, or disciplining them because a good father disciplines somebody they loves. And through that discipline, he was hoping that they would turn towards God. Well, eventually, God allows this evil empire called Babylon to really roll in and decimate Jerusalem, literally killing people, savagely killing people. But Babylon had this amazing like, like system, excuse me, where they would roll in and they would take the best of the best, the people who were educated, the people who were royalty, the, the best thinkers, the people who had the, the most to offer society. They, he, they would actually take those people and they would take them and, and, and drag them off literally as prisoners and bring them back to Babylon and establish them in homes and allow them to live in their culture. They would enculturate them trying to make a community of the smartest, brightest, strongest people. And so I just want you to put yourself in their shoes. It's so easy to read scripture. It's so easy to hear these stories and just think, oh, that's a cool story. But imagine for a minute that an evil empire, whatever you want to think about, another country rolls into the United States and they invade your home and they kill part of your family. Maybe it's your extended family. Maybe it's some of your family within that home, but they see something in you of, of promise, and so they take you and they literally lock you in, a, in, a, in, in some type of vehicle or even chain you and have you walk your way all the way back to this other country. And when you get to the other country, they establish you in a home, and then just imagine how you would feel about that country. But let me tell you the instructions to those people who were dragged away and placed in Babylon. In Jeremiah, it says, this is what the Lord Almighty, God of Israel, says to all those who were carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses, settle down, plant gardens, eat what they produce. Marry, have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage so that they may have sons and daughters. Increase in numbers and do not decrease. And then verse 7 says this. It says, seek the peace of and the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. How radical is that? Imagine being one of those people whose family members were killed and you were dragged away and you were forced to live where you don't want to live and God is saying, seek the peace and the prosperity of that city. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. They are commanded to seek the prosperity of the city for which they live. They are commanded to be a blessing to that, even though they are oppressed by that very city. And I th the thing that I want you to catch here is that the, the moment for us to think about it is, look, we struggle to do this in our context. We struggle to seek the prosperity of the current administration in Washington if they don't fit what we think they should fit. Some of you had a hard time with the previous administration and you couldn't wait for them. And, and if anything, you never prayed for them to prosper. And some of you can't stand the current administration and you would never pray for them to prosper. But the scripture says we are to pray for those in leadership over, this, over us and we were to pray that they would prosper because if they prosper, you prosper. And there's this beautiful picture of coming under submission of our leadership. 
And so the scripture says we are to be a blessing outside of these walls to the city of Detroit, to the city of Harper Woods, to all of the gross points that we have to be a blessing. We are to seek the prosperity of those around us. Some of you are thinking Doug is avoiding the text. <laughs> I'm not. I promise. I'm not. I'll get to it. I promise that I'll get to it. What I want you to hear, the principle that Peter lays out throughout all of 1 Peter is submit to the order that you are put in. That submission is submission and that you're not allowed to judge the quality of those you've been called to put under submission as to whether or not you have to submit or not. Doesn't mean you have to be blind, doesn't mean you have to be ignorant, but what he's saying is submit. Submit, even to Babylon, they were called to submit. Even to, to the governments, even to their oppressors, they're called to submit regardless of how they are treated. That's the theme of 1 Peter. So then we get into 1 Peter 3, and Peter writes these words. So now you can look, and it says, at first, beginning of 1 Peter 3, it says, Wives, in the same way. In the same way as what? In the same way of everything I've just been talking about. He, Peter has laid out this, this clear track of how to submit to your government. And he's even talked about how to submit to your master if you are a slave. He's not endorsing slavery. He's saying if that's the order of the society that you found yourself in, then submit to that authority. He's saying in the same way, keep reading, be submissive to your husband so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words but by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and the reverence of your lives. So it's clear from the text that Peter is starting out this, this section by addressing women whose husbands are not believers. And this is what he's actually saying. He's saying, look, when you discovered Christ, you were liberated. Because in the Christian world, in the world in which they were being brought into, these women were discovering, look, there's no Jew, no, no Greek. There's no male, no female. We are heirs and co-heirs with Christ. There is something incredibly liberating in the Christian economy between men and women. We are equal. We are co-heirs. We'll even see it in here. And that's the part that was revolutionary for these women to hear. And then he says, look, don't take that freedom. Don't take what you have in Christ and use it as an excuse to go back into your home where your husbands aren't believers, and rebel against them. Come under the authority of your husband so that, so that they will see that in you. They will see your gentleness. They will see who you are, and it will lead them towards Christ. Now, one thing we could say is, well, that's great. We have these instructions for for women who are married to unbelieving husbands, but what about women who are married to believing husbands? Certainly they're not called to submit as well, but Peter wants to make sure that, that we get all that. So in 1 Peter 3, 6, he says, look at Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called her masters. You are daughters if you do what is right, and do not give way to fear. I love that Peter wrote those words. Do not give way to fear. The scriptures tell us that perfect love casts out all fear. The only way a woman could ever live into the teachings of 1 Peter is to know their heavenly father. Is to really know God at such a level that they could expose themselves to poor leadership in their home. That they could actually allow themselves to be exposed because you know what? It's scary to give up control. It's scary to expose your heart to someone who is not going to treat it the way that it needs to be treated. But Peter is saying, don't give way to fear. Trust God with your heart and submit to the headship of your husband. I know that this isn't popular. I know that this is counterculture, but again, I would say we need some counterculture if we're going to see a change in the marriages in this church and in the communities around us. But he says, submit. Then he goes on and he says, your beauty, it shouldn't come from outward adornment, such as braided hair or wearing gold jewelry or fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of an inner self, of an unfading beauty, of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in the sight of God. I don't think this requires a lot of explanation, but I want to make sure you hear, Peter is not saying that it's wrong to braid your hair. He's not saying it's wrong to have your hair in a way that makes you feel special. 
He's not saying it's wrong for you to wear fine jewelry. He's not saying it's wrong for you to wear a beautiful outfit to, to even care about what you wear. He's not saying it's wrong for you to care about your figure. He's not saying it's wrong to do any of these things. What he is saying is do not let those things define your beauty. Do not think that that is what makes you beautiful because as we heard from these young girls, there is a beauty that comes from within that is far greater than anything that you could put on or that you could do to yourself. There is a beauty that can come and radiate from you when you really know who God is and all that he's done in your lives. When I was putting together this talk, I love the fact that we had a chance to talk to these true princesses because I love that, but, but the people I was thinking about when I was putting these tips are some of the the women in the church who have just walked with Jesus for a long time, the Esther Hansons and Francie and, and Karen Johnson and, and these women that when you sit with them, they radiate Christ and they are beautiful, beautiful women. Beautiful in ways that can only come from their long walk of understanding who Christ is in their lives and allowing the love of Christ to to exude out from them. There are women in this church that, that model this and it's so palatable to see their beauty that goes far beyond anything they could do on the outside. So, Peter's addressed the women. He's talked to the women and, and he said, women, you need to submit to the headship of your home. I know it's not popular, but it's God's design and he says that, that you need to have a quiet and submissive spirit. Don't try to, to, to talk your husband into what he needs to do. As a matter of fact, talk less and allow your lives to be what is an example to them about Christ. Live your life in such a way that your husband see Jesus in you by what you do. Submit. Don't let your, let your beauty be defined by what's on the inside. And then he switches gears and he says, husbands. This is verse 7. Some of you were waiting for me to get to the husbands, I know. <laughs> He says, husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. Treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you in the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. He says, men, be considerate as you live with your wives. Men, I am challenging you to listen to everything that I say from this point on. If there's a man sitting near you and he's asleep, and if you're his wife, don't do it. If somebody else throws something at him, wake him up. Men, <laughs> hang with me. I honestly believe that this one verse has the potential to radically transform every single marriage in this room. If your marriage is a disaster, this can make your marriage good. If your marriage is good, this can make your marriage great. And if your marriage is great, this can make your marriage even better. This one verse has the potential to change everything. He says, men, be considerate as you live with your wives. Some of your translations may read, dwell with your wives according to knowledge. Just as a side note, when he says wives, it's because he's talking to husbands. It doesn't mean we get multiple wives there's nothing about polygamy in here. If That's not the point. So, man, dwell with your wife according to knowledge. Be considerate of her in your home. The whole point here is that we are to dwell with. We are to be considerate. This is one word in the, in the original language, and, and it's a word that really loses most of its meaning on us. There isn't another word that I could find that even comes close to the, to the integral nuances of this, of this word. There's an element of, of physical intimacy in the word, but there's an element of spiritual intimacy and emotional intimacy in this word. It's really quite complicated, but the word is, is a word called sonyokio. And it means, literally, together dwell. Together dwell. I did the title of this talk. That's what I called the talk. Together dwell. It's the key. It's the heart of everything that Peter is trying to express. Dwell together. Be present to your 
wife. Actually know your wife. There is the, this word of, of gnosis, of knowledge. Dwell together in knowledge. Be considerate as you live with. There's this picture that Peter is painting that is revolutionary in its day because of the way women were seen as possessions, the way women were oppressed, the way women were just something to be owned. He's saying, no, don't just own your wives. Know your wives. And guess what? It's revolutionary today as well. He's saying, look, Know your wife. Know their physical needs. Know their emotional needs. Know their spiritual needs. You as men are called to know your wives. Live with your wives in knowledge. It's an amazing picture of us being present. You cannot do this and walk in the house and sit on the couch and channel surf. You cannot do this and go out with the boys two or three nights a week and hang out till late at night. You cannot do this unless you are emotionally and physically and, and intellectually present in your home. When you walk in the house and the end of the day, if your wife is there, then you need to stop and you need to look her in the eyes and you need to say, how are you? And then you need to listen. Listen for cues. Listen for understanding. Understand how your wife is. Live with your wife in knowledge. Know who she is. Know what makes her tick. Know her needs. I love the fact that this, this word, this sonyokio, there's this, this picture of physical intimacy because it's talking about that part of our relationship as well. You should know the needs of your wife. If you go to your wife to receive something from her physically, then you have missed the point we are to bring strength when we go to our wives we are not to take anything from them know your wife know what she needs and the fact of the matter is men if we live this way how much easier would it be for the women in our home to submit to our authority to submit to the headship of the house because they know we care for them because they we, they know that we have their interest in mind because they know that we are caring for them gently it would change everything. So the question I would ask is, how many of you, would your wife say, my husband is so considerate. My husband really knows me. My husband really knows me. He knows what makes me tick. He knows what makes me upset. He knows when I'm a little off base. He sees things in me that I can't even see in myself. So my husband has really taken the time to know me. And you know what? Every guy in the room knows how to do this. You know how I know? Because we all dated. And we all figured out how to do this when we were dating. Maybe even the person you married. You see, we pursued her and we asked other people, what is she like? Not what is she like, what does she like? No, really, like, what, what kind of things does she like to do? What do you think would bless her? And we even asked her, like, what would you like to do tonight? And when she said, I want to go to that sappy movie, we said, okay, let's go. Instead, of, I don't want to go see that movie. Why? Because we knew that's what she wanted to do, and we wanted to win her affection, and we wanted to know her, and we wanted to see what makes her tip. We all know how to do this, but something happened after we got married, and we stopped pursuing our wives, and we stopped dwelling with them with knowledge. And we wonder why our marriages are hard and we wonder why our wives have a hard time. I've got news for you women. Even if your husband doesn't do this, the scripture is saying, submit to your husband. It's a hard passage for us to comprehend. But the truth of the matter is he's painting this beautiful picture. But then he writes something that, that I've got to be honest, when I read it on Monday, I just thought to myself, is that the best word you could have picked, Peter? He says, treat them with respect as the weaker partner. I really don't want to teach this. <laughs> I did. That's exactly what I'm thinking on Monday. Is like, and so I go to the original language of Greek, and I'm thinking, can't really mean weaker. I'm hoping I can walk up there and say, well, it really doesn't mean weaker. What it really means is, guess what it means? <laughs> Good news. It means weaker. So, but we got to put it into context. We got to put it in context of that word, and we got to know that what Peter is actually saying is he's talking about being physically weaker. He's not talking about being emotionally weaker. He's not talking about being spiritually weaker. He's not talking about whether or not they can lead or not lead. He's not talking about whether or not they can be ordained or not ordained. Again, that's, that's a debate we can have another day and another time. Look forward to that one. But what he is talking about is that they are physically weaker. And we saw this play out this week, didn't we? With a football player who hit his wife and knocked her out cold. 
And then there was this debate, well, maybe she deserved it. Well, maybe she was hitting him first. The truth of the matter is a NFL football player ought never raise his hand against a woman. Any man should never raise his hand against a, a woman because men are traditionally stronger. Now, I know we could have a debate that all men are not stronger than all women. There are some pretty wimpy guys out there, and there's some pretty masculine women out there. That's not the point. The point is that in the context of our marriage, we need to understand that God has given us this partner who is physically weaker than us. And so I have a physical demonstration I want to share with you about what Peter is trying to say. This is a beer mug, and this is a champagne flute. And the truth of the matter is, one is not better than the other. One may serve a different purpose than the other. This is a lot better instrument for drinking beer, and this is a lot better instrument for drinking champagne. I'm not endorsing either of those things. It's just an, il just an illustration. You guys are going to have like 110 things to email Doug Kepton about at the end of this talk. But what he is saying is they're different. And the truth of the matter is, if this mug intersects this champagne flute, this is going to break. Nothing happens to this because it's different. And so when he says weaker, what he's saying is pay attention. I have entrusted something very delicate to you men. I have entrusted your wives to you. Hold them gently. Care for their hearts with everything you have. We are called to be protectors in our families. We are called to be warriors for our families and to step up and to make sure that they are cared for in a way that their hearts are not broken, that their physical bodies are not crushed. Peter is making sure that we know the calling is men to stand in the gap and to protect the women in our lives. You want to be a game changer? You want to change the landscape of your home, men? Pursue your wives. Know everything you can know about them. Ask and listen. Go home today and ask your wives, how can I be a better husband? What do you want me to know about you? What is it like to be married to me? How can I love you more? Tell me what makes you tick. Tell me what I'm missing. What would you like to do tonight? Anything you want to do, even if it's that sappy movie I got no interest in seeing. Love your wives in such a way. Dwell with your wives in knowledge. And I believe this to the core of who I am. I believe when we as the men step up and lead the way we're called to lead, that the women will not be afraid to submit because we've cared for them well. We've loved them well. I want to make one more observation because I think it's important. I was talking to a friend of mine, a mentor, and um, he often helps me to think through uh, things. But in this case, I was talking to him and um, I cut my finger. It's, it's tiny. It's no big deal. Just didn't want to keep forgetting people in the front row are fainting and I'm still talking. What's going on? <laughs> Look at how the spirit's moving. So. <laughs> anyway, so I was talking to my friend and... Uh, he says this, he said, you know, Doug, the minute uh, my wife starts to think about how I need to lead better, we're in trouble. He said, you know, the minute I start to think if only she would submit to my authority, we're in trouble. And I, that resonated with me because I know that to be true in my marriage with Meg. You know, those of you who don't know, we just celebrated 28 years of marriage. Um, yeah, it's a good thing. And if you were around for the first 10, you would know what a miracle that is. And I, I don't say that lightly. It was, it was hell. It, it couldn't have been worse. Our first 10 years were tragic. And we did none of this. And we loved each other poorly. And I was a terrible husband. And it was horrific. But what I learned along the way is as I began to walk with Jesus, that, that God really never gives me permission to say, if Meg would only. He never gives me permission to say, if Meg would only, then our marriage should be great. What he says is, Doug, you worry about you, I'll take care of Meg. You worry about what you got to worry about. And so some of you have listened to this talk. Some of you have been saying to yourself, boy, he's right. If, if he would only, boy, I can't wait to go buy the CD and give that to him or her. And what I want you to hear is, you're already in trouble if that's the case. Because Peter's writing to women and he's saying, women... This is what God's calling you to do. 
Live your lives in submission with a gentle and quiet spirit so that your husbands see Christ in you. And then he's coming over here and he's saying, men, live with your wives in knowledge. Know who they are so that they see Christ in you. And neither person gets a pass. Neither one gets to say, as soon as they start, then I will, as soon as they do. And even if they never start, you're still called to do it. And even if she never responds, you're still called to do it because that's the economy of First Peter is that we don't do things because of the way people respond. We do it because it's the command of Scripture. We do it because God says this is what's right in the eyes of the Lord and we want the blessing of God. And then he says, men, live that way so that your prayers will be answered. Do you know that when we live in obedience to God, that our prayers are more powerful it is a beautiful picture so I don't want you to leave here saying if only if only they would this is a beautiful passage for self-examination so apply it to your own lives and not the lives of the people around you everything about today's passage in my opinion is counterculture everything about it is not what you're going to hear in any self-help book. It's not the, it's just, it's counterculture. But we need counterculture. We need better marriages. We need stronger families. We need the men to step up and be the men that God has called us to be. We need to lead in the context of our homes. We need to radically change the landscape. We need to be game changers in our homes. We need to follow the radical teachings of Peter the radical teachings of Jesus, and we will see radical improvements. Do you know, Ed was right when he said, it just takes a word from God. Be obedient and then pray, and all God has to do is speak the word, and it will change your marriages. Let's pray. Lord, I am so grateful for First Peter. Uh, I'm not sure I could have prayed that on Monday. But today I'm grateful for First Peter. I'm grateful for the discipline of walking through this passage. I'm grateful for the challenge that you've given to me to know Meg more, to love Meg better, to live with her in knowledge is a challenge that I can hang on to for the rest of my life. Lord, I pray that we as men would be the men that you've called us to be and live with our wives in knowledge to together dwell, knowing them, pursuing them, caring for them, holding their hearts gently in our hands. Lord, I pray for the women in this room whose husbands are still acting out and not, not doing what they should, that are, that are being the fool, that they would entrust their hearts to you. They wouldn't give way to fear, and they would submit to their husbands in a way that, that their husbands could see Christ in them. Lord, strengthen the marriages in this room. Help us to be who you've called us to be. Thank you for Sunday that we can come together in freedom, that we can worship in freedom, that we can open your word in freedom, that we can say Jesus is Lord in freedom. Lord, we take all that for granted. Help us to live in the freedom that you've given us to be who you've called us to be. In Jesus' awesome name, amen. If you would like prayer, there's prayer warriors that are down here. We would love to pray for you uh, as soon as the service is done. God bless you. Have a great Sunday. Oh